Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to see you all braving the rain and the elements to have fellowship. And hopefully you're sticking around for the barbecue afterwards. It should be great. Uh, we'll be in Job chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are awesome. You are holy. You are worthy. And what else can we say, Lord? Words fail to describe how excellent you are above all names, that you are greatest, you are the best, you are sovereign and, and righteous, good, glorious, majestic. We just come before you humbly, uh, recognizing our need for you and acknowledging all that you've done for us. We, we only know a fraction of what you've done, Lord, but what we've seen what we've tasted, you are good, you are excellent. And so thank you so much for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and this opportunity to read and to consider the things you're saying to us. I pray you would strengthen us to walk in your ways and have eyes that look towards you and uh, give us faith to receive your truth. Fill us with your spirit. Make us your obedient servants in whom you are well pleased in Jesus' name, amen. It's quite an industry to, uh, to look and to feel good. Think about all the time that is spent in, uh, toward those ends, trying to look your best. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with looking your best. And, uh, but I was thinking about a term that we can use with clothing where they say, that's, that's unflattering. And the implication is, is that you can wear clothes to be flattered. You want to be praised. Uh, that we want to be pleased with applause. And, and, and we ought to make as much effort to be purified on the inside as we are to sanitize and wash our hands on the outside. Right? The heart is the thing that God is looking at. He sees it. And think about when our family had pictures taken. Uh, he applied some, or the, the lady that was assisting the photographer, applied some concealer to people who had a blemish on their face. And so the pictures are taken, and then you can digitally alter the photographs, you know, to remove some red eye or, um, like, oh, I, I don't like how that looks. And we can present a picture that we want others to see and try to cover what we don't want people to see. And uh, we can use a filter for fun, but can also be... Um, because of a lot of reasons. I don't want to speculate. But, but here's a picture that I thought would be interesting of what goes on behind the scenes in some advertising. So that should come up. Hopefully I'm not in the way. But it's quite interesting, right? You have the model with the beautiful face, and then you have the model with the beautiful hands. And they put them together and you are a pre what's presented to you is a picture of perfection that's been airbrushed and dolled up to look a certain way when the photographer and the models know what's going on. You don't know about that, but they know. And when I see that picture, I think about how we can present an image before people or before God, the parts that we want him to see, the way we want to be shown, the light shining on us. But when the reality is he looks on the heart. He knows our motives and thoughts. And we have a serious problem with sin. We have pride, deceit, and lies in the hearts of every person. And God reveals that because he knows what's right and wrong. He is righteous. 
He hears the unfiltered thoughts in our minds. And he says of mankind, there is none that does good. No, not one. So he sees that we are sinners. And it's out of love that God reveals this very uncomfortable reality about us because he wants to save us. He wants to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives that we haven't realized was there. That's pushing us toward our doom. We're just following after it. There's that reality that without mercy, the soul that sins will surely die. And even if we claim to be innocent, if we find faults with others, Romans 2, it says that the reason why we find fault with them is because we practice the same thing. It's like we're switched on to it. So that even exposes our hypocrisy. Job was a righteous man. He was judged and condemned as wicked by friends who were guilty of the very things they accused Job of being guilty of. And that term, it takes one to know one. It rings true in this case with Job's friends. They're accusing him of great sin, but it takes one to know one. They were sinners too. And it's only by the grace of God that we can be forgiven, made whole. And so in response to Job's plea for pity, Zophar now sounds off for the second time in Job 20 verse 1. Then Zophar, the Neamathite, answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me, and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. This is the second and last time that Zophar will speak. All of Job's friends have spoken in turn, and then Job rebuts them. In Job 11, that's the last time Zophar spoke, he accused Job of lying, and he said, what you're suffering is less than what your sin deserves. He was pretty harsh with him. And he, his analysis, he seems very analytical, but it was based on a faulty premise that sinners suffer as a result of judgment for sin. Job is suffering, therefore Job has sinned. So, and that's just an absolute concrete way of condemning Job. And he said, your only hope is to confess your sin before God, and then you can forget that it ever happened. Like everything will be, be great after that. Now we see that Zophar is going from analytical to being a bit emotional. He says, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm troubled. Like, who are you, Job, to say these things to us? How dare you? And he, he holds back. He does not hold back at all. He's annoyed. He's disturbed by Job that he's begging for mercy and pity rather than confessing his guilt. And Matthew Henry writes of this. I thought this was great. Never was any doctrine better explained or worse applied than this by Zophar, who intended by all this to prove Job a hypocrite. So what was the teaching? What was the uh, doctrine that Zophar was giving? Well, he's going to talk about how the wicked will perish, how attempt to hide sin, those are futile, and that God will certainly destroy the wicked. These are the three things that he brings out during this discourse. Now, we don't often use the word wicked very often, do we? Unless we're talking about the musical or something that's really awesome, something that's really great. But the Bible uses that word very loosely and broadly. If we use that word, it's like for the worst of the worst. If you say, well, he is wicked um, or she is wicked or that was a wicked thing to do as like trying to illustrate how awfully bad it was. But the Bible uses it very broadly because one sin is wickedness and all have sinned. Webster explains wicked as 
the sense to wind and turn or to depart, to fall away, evil in principle or practice, deviating from the divine law, addicted to vice, sinful, immoral. So it's a turning from God. It's a turning to sin. That is a definition of wickedness. And God has the right, being righteous, to define what that is. Zophar continues in verse four. Do you not know this of old since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment? Though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds, yet he will perish forever like his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. His children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will restore his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. God was the one who placed man on the earth. I like that word placed. Adam, he formed from the dust of the ground. Eve, he took from the side of Adam. Into mankind, God breathed a living soul. There's many people who have come and gone since the beginning. And Zophar asked, Job, are you ignorant of how short man's time on earth is? Job was not ignorant of this, but in comparison to God and to eternity, man's life is a breath. It's a vapor. It's a moment in time. And he says, our joys and triumphs in life are brief. Our perishing though is permanent. And it made me think of my granddad. When you think of survival stories or battles winning. And uh, he, he served in the U.S. Navy during World War II and was a Pearl Harbor survivor. Uh, he survived a stroke. He, he defeated cancer. Like he won that battle. But eventually in 2003, this strong man grew ill, weak, and he passed. And he was buried at Fort Rosecrans Cemetery in Point Loma with military honors. And I had a picture I found of his tomb, because um, I haven't been there in many years, well, since 2003. And I noticed that in a matter of a few years, see how the, the words have begun to fade. It's like, you can be a champion, you can be a survivor, you can have great victories, but in time... The memory of your life, the memory of your achievements and accomplishments on earth, they will go away. They will fade. So Zophar is just reminding Job of the brevity of life and how the greatest things we could accomplish, they will be silenced by the grave. And it's true for all men, whether you're a petty officer, a commander, or an admiral, the more everyone who's youthful will grow old. Job's loss of his 10 children, it showed that some people don't have the opportunity to grow old because they died when that house collapsed on them. So from a worldly vantage point, it doesn't really matter what you accomplish in life. Zophar points out that all perish like their own waste. Like he is just laying it out there for Job. Now, a lot of us, and I think a lot of people, do not know how to address their own mortality. Recent stats that I saw, it indicates about half of Australians have a, a will. It's kind of like at times we, we will put off that inevitability. We won't speak about our demise. It's, it's like a subject to be avoided. It's 
to be swept under the rug or fear, you fear that day or you act as if it's never going to come and you live your life as you desire. And we want to put off the thought of diving, dying until death comes for us unexpectedly. But God in his mercy and his love, he doesn't hide these uncomfortable realities from us, even as a good doctor or surgeon does not hide that uh, diagnosis from the patient they want to see made well. They want to see them healed and cured and go on to live a fruitful and productive life. God's given us his law so we can identify what sin is, that we can take it personal and say, I am guilty. I have sinned. I've committed wickedness before God. I've, I have lied. I have stolen and coveted. Romans 5.12, it says, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned because of sin. We die. Our bodies will lie in the dust, yet our souls will live on. We will face eternal judgment from God. Continuing in Job 20 verse 12, though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth. Yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes cobra venom within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He will restore that for which he labored and will not swallow it down. From the proceeds of business, he will get no enjoyment for he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized a house which he did not build. So far speaks of the sweetness of sin, that it is sweet to our taste. But if we hold it inside of us, it poisons our lives. It poisons everything. Instead of spitting it out, we can, in, in confession and in repentance and in turning from wickedness, we can choose to hide it as if God doesn't see or know. If you ever had a, a pet or your child bite something or eat something that you know is dangerous for them, and you're like, hey, give me that. And they're like, oh, I kind of want this because you want to take it from me. And uh, you're like, open up, give that to me. Don't, don't eat that. That's not food. It's not good for you. It's dangerous. You know, those berries will have to go to the, 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 uh, the hospital and have your stomach pumped or something, which happened uh, when I was a kid. The neighbor kid decided that those um, berries on our tree, the china berry tree, looked delicious and started eating them. And it was a big problem. So we learned, do not eat those berries. Don't even try to see what they taste like. They're dangerous. Zophar says we can choose to spare evil, to not forsake it, and to keep it. There's a couple examples I want to share from scripture. Saul, he was commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites and all that they had. And instead of doing that, though, Saul decided to spare King Amalek and the best of the spoil under the pretense of giving a sacrifice to God. But when the prophet Samuel called Saul out for his disobedience that he had not done what God said, Saul first said, hey, I've done the will of, the God, of God. And then it's the people. He deflected. He said, the people they took of the spoil. And why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15, 18, where we see Samuel's response of the consequence of his sin that he refused to spit out. 1 Samuel 15, 18. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, 
To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul could protest all he wanted. He could deflect blame. He could try to justify himself, but he couldn't hide his sin. It's like those, those oxen were lowing in the background. He's like, what's the sound of these animals that I'm hearing? And the king, he's right here. And Saul's rejection of God's command led him to be rejected from being king. So if we try to hide sin, we'll all face the bitter consequences of it. And when we hide it, it's as sensible as being injected with cobra venom, right? Nobody wants to, if you see a cobra, it's something to get away from. It's something to call the snake catcher. You don't want to be dealing with some dangerous animal unless you're trained to do so because you know it's deadly. You know it can harm you or your children or your pets. We see this in Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. Naaman the Syrian came to Israel to be healed of his leprosy which was a disfiguring death sentence. It's something you could see plainly on the skin. And he came to be healed. And according to the word of the Lord by Elisha, he went to the Jordan, dipped seven times, and was miraculously healed. So he returned to Elisha's residence, and he, he said, hey, you've healed me. I'm only going to worship God. Take a gift from me. And Elisha refused to take anything. But Gehazi, his servant, he said, um, as the Lord lives, I'm running after the Syrian and I'm going to take something from him. Now, when he came to offer a gift, it wasn't like a $50 gift card at the local shops. Like he brought 10 talents of silver. A talent is about 33 kilos of silver. Okay. He brought 10 of those, 600 pieces of gold, 10 changes of clothing, and they were all Elisha's for the asking. He could have them all. But he said, I'm not taking a scrap from you. I'm not taking a piece of silver. But Gehazi, he had greed. So he ran after him and he said, oh, he, he spun a story. He said, oh, some prophets just came and Elisha sent me. And, you know, he says, it'd be really nice if you could give us a talent of silver and two changes of clothes for those prophets who were fictitious. They weren't real. And he's like, oh, take two talents. Wouldn't you like that? Someone to urge you to take 33 kilos more of silver than what you asked for? And he's like, oh, okay, fine. And he, he loads his servants with the silver and the clothing. And they go to his house and they stash it. And Gehazi rocks up to Elisha. And this is what happens. You can turn there if you want in 2 Kings 5, verse 25. He was in for a shock when he met with the prophet of God. 2 Kings 5.25 says this. Now he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. When he took that money into his house, he's thinking, man, this is life-changing money. This is going to change everything. Think of what I can acquire. He didn't think for a moment he was going to get leprosy. But that's what happened. For his greed, 
he was given what Naaman sought to be freed from. He had the money, but leprosy now. Was that a good trade? Is that a trade that you would be willing to make? A short-sighted trade if you make it, because leprosy will be the death of you. And how can you enjoy those things that you get for yourself? Sin destroys the lives and souls of those who spare it, those who will not forsake it, the one who hide it. And if we won't slay our sin, it will slay us without a fight. We can put up no resistance to it. In the end, it brings no satisfaction, just shame and sorrow. So, so far, he's taking shots at Job. He's saying, you're reaping what you have sown. And he wrongly alleged that it was Job's sin that caused his business to fail, that he had oppressed the poor and he had violently taken from others what God, and so God was doing the same to him. He's saying, God's returning your own bad deeds upon your head, Job. And so, so far had more to say. Verse 20, because he knows no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being will not last. In his self-sufficiency, he will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. When he is about to fill his stomach, God will cast on him the fury of his wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon. A bronze bow will pierce him through. It is drawn and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of his gall. Terrors come upon him. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. An unfanned fire will consume him. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart and his goods will flow away in the day of his wrath. This is the portion from God for a wicked man, the heritage appointed to him by God. He describes here the heart of the wicked as one that is without peace, without rest, empty, without hope of a future because of God's wrath. And it's like that whole facade of self-sufficiency just comes crashing down in a moment with the end of your life. I'm reminded of Noah in Genesis 7, how he obeyed the word of the Lord. He built this ark. He went into the ark and it says God shut him in. And in shutting him in and preserving and protecting him, he shut out effectively anyone that would have wanted to try to clamber into that ark when the rain began to fall. There was no hope for those people at that stage. There was a window of opportunity that closed suddenly and God's judgment was poured out. Think of Genesis 19, where Lot warned his sons-in-law that there was judgment coming against the city. And it says he seemed to his sons to be one who was joking with them. They didn't believe. And so they remained there when the fire fell and consumed those who stayed. So there's people going about their lives. They're sitting down to eat and suddenly the wrath of God falls upon them and there was no escape. And many of us have never really looked death in the face because we never thought he was coming for us. Um, but like that fiery preacher in Pollyanna in that Disney movie says, death comes unexpectedly. You do not know how much time you have left on earth. There's been people who have escaped a siege. Those who were threatened with a knife, they managed to survive. But no one can escape the wrath of God. So Zophar has this right, that there's no escape from him, from the one who judges and knows all things. He will bring terror upon the wicked, though they try to justify themselves. And it says that heaven and earth will be witnesses against us. It's kind of like 
Sometimes there's a court case and the witnesses in the case, they, they were incapacitated or unable to testify for some reason, but none of us are going to outlive the heavens and the earth. They will be there to testify against us of the things we have said and done. What we've kept secret will all be exposed in due time and the wicked will be consumed. So Zophar is just hammering home these points with Job, but he misses the mark. And there's this huge glaring omission from all that Zophar has said that God, who is a righteous judge, he is also merciful. He is loving. He is compassionate. He shows pity on the one who fears him. He hears the cries of the sinner who repents and calls out to him. He answers that prayer like God reveals our sin to save us. We can repent. We can be forgiven. We can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is heavy with warnings concerning God's judgment of the wicked, but it also overflows with that sure hope of forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, protection, and fellowship with God in his glorious presence forever. Amen. It's so good that we have those promises. Job 21 verse 1. Then Job answered and said, listen carefully to my speech and let this be your consolation. Bear with me that I may speak. And after I have spoken, keep mocking. <laughs> so Job and his friends, they're definitely going back and forth. There's, there's no love lost between them at this stage. Uh, Job feels like they haven't been listening to him at all. They've only been condemning him when he, he needed their compassion. They had not been listening to him, but he had been observing what they had said. And he would rebut in the next chapter the things that he had heard uh, time after time. And he asked for them to be as courteous to them as he was to let them finish speaking. And then he would respond. And he says, if when I'm done speaking, feel free to keep on mocking. There's a bit of sarcasm there. His, his expectation was they would be compassionate towards him and how do we feel when our expectations are dashed? Especially when someone close to us, we expected them to have our back. To say, I'm so sorry that you're hurting. And then they're condemning you? Well, that stirs us up a bit. And that's where Job was at. Job 20 verse 4. As for me, is my complaint against man? And if it were, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be astonished. Put your hand over your mouth. Even when I remember, I am terrified and trembling takes hold of my flesh. Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. He reminds them, my complaint isn't against you. It's not against man. I'm not angry at the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans for stealing stuff and killing my servants. My complaint is against God. He's the one. It's a spiritual issue. It's me sorting things out with him. I'm not attacking you. My complaint is against the Lord because he is the one who has done this. While they were saying, Job, you've done this to yourself. You're responsible for this. Did not his situation call for urgency? He's like, guys, look at me. Look at what's happened. Look at the boils. Look at, I I'm sitting, the greatest man in the East in in dust and ashes and scraping myself with a pot shirt. Shouldn't something be done about this? 
any sensible person would have been shocked to see his condition. Likely if they had not known Job at all, they would have shown more compassion to him than because they were familiar with him because they felt free to express what they really thought. So they were not showing the same compassion or giving him the benefit of the doubt, or I like to say the benefit of the faith to somebody. They attacked him. They accused him. And I've noticed too, and it's a good thing for us to think about that familiarity at times can breed contempt when we, we are close to someone with a spouse, with a child, with a friend, we can be very unguarded with the things we say that can be hurtful because we're familiar with them. We feel like we have the right to say something. We have the freedom to say what we really think when we ought to show pity when they're in pain, have some compassion. And we, we love our love. It can be assumed rather than demonstrated. It's kind of like, well, of course I love her. I married her, right? Okay, that's great. But just because you are wearing wedding rings and share the same bed, it doesn't mean you're walking in love towards each other right now. That you're saying things to edify and to encourage. Or are you saying things to tear down and undermine and you're bringing up past wrongs that you say you've forgiven, but you haven't. We ought to be walking in love towards one another, bearing one of those burdens, extending grace and mercy. Consider this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. I like the NIV rendering of thinks no evil. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's what love is. It suffers long. Doesn't bring up the past issues. It's not keeping track of the, how many times something has happened. Have you been guilty of this? You keep a list of offenses, maybe on a piece of paper or in your own mind. That's not walking in love. And that's a sin. That is wickedness to not walk in love. When Job considered all that God allowed to befall him, he was terrified. He was, he trembled. He's like, I followed God with all my might. I've trusted him completely. And look at what's happened to me. Uh, he really didn't know what to do at this stage. And his voice is quivering with emotion as he, he points out this fatal flaw in Zophar's reasoning. He's saying, why is it then that the wicked who sin and glory in their sin, who don't fear God or serve him, they seem to prosper. They live long lives. They in, seem to enjoy the fruit of wickedness. They live out their days. They have houses full of kids and they don't seem to be bothered with the care in the world. If God causes men to immediately reap what they sow, how did murderous warlords enjoy such a flourishing trade? How is it that the slave traders or the drug dealers or the thieves seem to profit? They have power and money and they live in luxury. How is this the case? If what you're saying is true so far, how is it that these people who do not fear God, who oppress the poor, they see their great, great grandchildren when the righteous die in their youth. And Solomon made a similar observation in Ecclesiastes 7:15. He writes, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. 
So he's weighing the claims of Zophar and he's saying, according to my observation, according to my experience, your words are contradicting that. Suffering on earth is not always a direct result as a punishment of sin or a judgment, even as financial prosperity is not proof of righteousness or God's favor. If you, if you receive one of those, you must accept the other. So Job pushes back against this thinking that was even in the disciples of Jesus. When they saw that man blind from birth, remember what they said. They said, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. They assumed that this man's blindness was as a result of sin. But Jesus said in John 9, 3, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, he's not suggesting that they were sinless, that they had never sinned in their lives, but that sin was not the root cause of the blindness. God had a whole other plan for allowing this blindness, which was true in Job's case, to reveal God's works in him. So that the eyes of the people would be open to see Jesus as the Savior. That was the purpose behind it. And I guess if you're that blind one, Who's saying, well, I've been blind my whole life just for this one sign. Well, do you realize how great Jesus is and how he's worthy to be glorified? How that God would choose you to have his works shown in your life. You are privileged when the world looks upon you as if you're cursed because God is worthy. He is good. Jesus would do the impossible. He would cause that man born blind to miraculously see, and he would also restore Job. Job continues in verse 10. Their bull breeds without failure, their cow calves without miscarriage. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and harp, and rejoice to the sound of the flute. They spend their days in wealth, and in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? Indeed, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Job continues to trot out the injustice that he's seeing, where it's according to their words, like, well, if God only punishes the wicked, why is it that they seem so... Uh, prosperous, you know, their, their flocks are growing, their herds are multiplying and their kids are running around and uh, they're enjoying music and parties and dances and uh, they, they don't desire to know God. They say, what is even profit to pray? Like they're saying blasphemy against him and they live lives to the full right to the moment of their deaths in old age. And they, they act like they're God themselves that they're better than the Almighty. So how could Zophar be correct when there were such obvious exceptions to these absolute claims he was making? In verse 16, Job says their prosperity was not in their hand. It wasn't their doing. It was God who gives and takes away. And it didn't mean that Job was going to walk in their ways. Like, I'm going to forsake God as if I would profit by doing that. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to maintain my integrity. I'm going to keep trusting in God. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The end does not justify the means. Joe realized all in the end will be judged by God. And so he humbled himself before him. Now, it is true that God will judge the wicked. They will not escape his wrath. 
it may not be experienced on this earth. I think it's Karl Marx who's credited with writing that religion was the opiate of the masses. I think worldly prosperity infinitely better fits that description. Because when you have prosperity in this life and you, rec- you don't have the trials or troubles, you can fall for the, the lie that you are self-sufficient, that you are able to support yourself, to save yourself. But the Bible teaches that eternity awaits beyond this world, that the soul that sins will die. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can become the first trillionaire and become a household name for your wealth, but it will not save or profit your soul at all. The world, it's a temporary, a fleeting shadow. Heaven and hell are forever. And this revelation poses an impossible problem, right? Because it's like, well, who hasn't sinned? Who hasn't committed wickedness? How can we go into heaven where only the righteous can dwell? People that are righteous like God is righteous and there is none good. No, not one. How is this possible? Well, thanks be to God through faith in Christ who satisfied the justice of God when he shed his blood. He's the narrow gate through whom we enter. That if we trust in him, if we repent of our sin, we will be born again. We will have the Holy Spirit within us. We will be made righteous. His righteousness is imputed or credited to us by that atoning work that Jesus has paid it all. And now we have been accepted into his kingdom. In Jesus, we find a savior, a Lord, rest for our souls forever. And where you've come from is not as important as where you're going. And with whom you will spend eternity with the devil and his followers who are suffering wrath at the hand of God forever or with God in the light, the kingdom of God, that glorious place in his presence forever where there is rest for our souls and rewards for those who seek him. In the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, he thanked God for them. He says, we glory in your patience and your faith and in all the tribulation and persecution that you've endured. Kind of like Job. He had endured a lot of tribulation and suffering and he kept trusting God. People in the church, they suffered persecution. Their pains weren't ignored or glossed over. Rather than seeing this as a punishment for sin, uh, Paul saw it as the justice of God. He says that it was God's justice to allow suffering for believers so they could be proved worthy of entering the kingdom of God. Now, that's a very powerful thing to say. Paul affirmed that those who do not know God or obey the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction. God doesn't flatter us. He tells us the truth about ourselves and the future that awaits every person. So today we really arrive that fork in the road for all of us. The wicked heading to hell. Souls made righteous in faith by faith in Christ will receive eternal life. And like that advertisement, people are notoriously skilled at presenting what others, what they want others to see. And God isn't fooled by appearances. Really, those who walk in hypocrisy only fool themselves. 
Many claim that they're heading towards heaven because of what they believe when their lives are filled with what God calls wickedness. They refuse to forsake. So we all have an opportunity like Naaman, who was cleansed of his leprosy, to be washed clean of our guilt, our shame, our sin, our wickedness. We can be born again by faith in Christ. And it's not just, so the call to repentance is not just for the state, that point of conversion where you are turning from death to life through faith in Christ, but also for the believer that we would repent. David in Psalm 25, this is what he said. And this is a man who trusted God, who had faith in God. I just read this in my devotional reading this morning. He says in verse seven, remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. He also says in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity for it is great. This is a godly man, a a man after God's heart. Verse 18, look upon mine affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. So we need forgiveness. And there there is cleansing. There is salvation. There is hope in Jesus Christ not found anywhere else because he is the way, the truth, and the life the only way to God. And I exhort you as Paul did in 1 Thessalonians 2:12 that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. How will you answer God's call to you? That call to walk worthy of God. When we get a call, we have options now. In the old days you had a an answering machine. Now we can look at it and say, "Oh, I know who's calling me." I will decline that call. I will send an SMS. I am busy in a meeting. Call you back. And I encourage you to consider, what is God saying to you right now? Now is the time to respond. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to humble yourself before him who is just, gracious, merciful, who is compassionate, who came to save sinners and to wash them clean to reconcile them and redeem them unto himself. If there's a conviction of sin, forsake it, confess it. If you're afraid to die right now, you can be born again through faith in Jesus Christ who died to redeem lost sinners. And according to his promise, we know he will give us the Holy Spirit. We don't have to beg and plead with him hopelessly because he has promised he will perform it. He will forgive. He will save. Thank God he loves us or we're lost forever. Thank God he forgives us or we are all unclean and hopeless. Praise him, glorify and exalt him because he is good and gracious, a savior, our Lord and King. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are awesome in your ways, that your wrath is terrible. It is frightening. Your great power And at the same time, your salvation is glorious and good and extended to all. We were all headed for destruction and we, you've made a way for all of us to be born again and to be made new, to be forgiven and have a life with you, to have fellowship with you day by day and to have eternity in your presence begin. And we thank you, Lord, for your word and these reminders and these uncomfortable truths that you are willing to present out of love for us that we would not be lost We would not be hypocrites. We would not forget that you see all things. Lord, help us to be those who walk worthy 
of God, to walk worthy of your kingdom and glory. And thank you for sending Jesus to be our savior. Thank you for giving us life when we were headed to destruction. And thank you for the hope that you've given us in heaven that does not fade away, reserved for us. Thank you for calling us, Lord. Thank you for being mindful of us. And we rejoice in your goodness to us all. And I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling today, those who are in pain, those who are uh, watching online who are sick, those who are uh, feeling lonely and afraid. Lord, I pray that you would minister your truth to their hearts, that you would reveal yourself to them in a powerful way. And for us, Lord, I pray that all of us would draw near to you with hearts of humility, filled with repentance, desiring your will be done in and through our lives. And we praise you, Lord. We thank you for all you've done, for all that you've promised, and for all you will do in Jesus' name. Amen.